Good morning. Can, can you hear me back there? John, can you hear me? <laughs> can you hear me, John? Can, can you hear me back there? <laughs> I figured. I figured. Uh, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. And the first thing I'm going to do uh, is pray. And, and even before that, remind you of an announcement that Jerry asked me to make. And that is thanks to all who have brought refreshments these first two weeks. I think there are, um, what, five or six weeks still that you do not have people signed up for. So if you would like to do that during the nine-week course, um, see Jerry and let him know that you would like to do that and when. So we appreciate all those who are bringing refreshments, though. It's really good. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time together this morning to open your word about a very serious subject in the word. I pray, Father, that you would just encourage us and cause us to lean upon the truth of Scripture, cause us to be sobered about the subject that we're considering this week and the next two. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that's said and done. Give me strength and power from on high, wisdom from above. May all that I say be true to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the first thing we're going to do is watch just about five minutes of a video that I found on the web when I did this course back in Colorado. If you were here last week, we saw a short three-minute video from Rob Bell. Interestingly enough, this fellow is an acclaimed evangelical in England named Rob, Robin. I don't know what the connection in these names are, but if you know any Robs, no, there might even be a Rob here, I'm just kidding. Um, so we have Rob Bell last week, Robin Perry this week, an Englishman who's an avowed evangelical universalist. That's going to be one of the things we look at this morning, but I thought I would let you just get a feel of what this sounds like and how winsome these guys can be and even try to tie what they're saying into Scripture. So listen, I'll tell Jerry when to squelch him. We'll listen to about five or six minutes, but I just want you to get a feel for what an evangelical universalist sounds like and the kind of things he's saying. Because they're out there today. They're out there. Okay? Does the Bible give place to the possibility that God will ultimately be successful in drawing absolutely everybody to faith in Christ? I think most Christians would answer that unequivocally, no. Um, I'm a little unusual in that regard. Uh, I do think that the Bible does uh, provide good grounds for hope uh, that indeed God will achieve his purpose of saving all people. And I know I'm a little bit out on a limb here, although it is a Christian tradition with a noble heritage, uh, even though it's been a minority sport through the years, and I think it's a Christian tradition rooted in both scripture and in the gospel itself. And um, I'm not suggesting it's something that, you know, if you're an orthodox Christian, you have to believe this. I, mean, I, I would never dare be so, <laughs> so uh, bold or arrogant to suggest that, but I do think that, it's, that the idea that God will save all people through Christ 
is neither heretical and nor dodgy nor unbiblical. What, what do we want to say? I mean, in a sense, the idea it, it grows out of a deep Christian instinct grounded in fundamental orthodox Christian beliefs. We believe that God created all things and that God created all things good and that God purposes good things for his creation. Uh, we believe that although that, that Christ becomes incarnate as representative man, not just for some people, but for humanity. He stands before God as high priest, as a human in our place, as the God-man. This comes out brilliantly in the work of T.F. Torrance. Most Christians, not all, most Christians believe that Christ not only came to represent all people before God in his life, but also in his death. And that when Christ dies, he dies on behalf of all humanity. There are various well-known scriptures that do that, and, and I, I'm aware that some Christian traditions would deny it, uh, but it seems clearly the teaching of scripture, and it is the teaching of the majority of Christians. So already we have, th there is a deep orthodox instinct that God has purposes. It's not, God takes no delight in the death of anyone. God's purpose, God wants, God's heart is for the salvation of all, and it's precisely for that purpose that he sends Christ to stand before God on behalf of all, to die on behalf of all, and not simply to die, but to be raised on behalf of all. And so the question is, well, in one sense, you know, I want to say, you know, salvation for the, whole, for the whole humanity and for the whole creation is not something that in scripture we even hope God might do, but it is something that in the very person of Christ himself, God has already achieved. So in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that is already done in the past the salvation of all humanity and all creation following from that in our in our place in our representative in our messiah and what the holy spirit is doing is working in creation by uniting people to christ through faith and baptism joining our lives to christ so that we can participate in the salvation that's already achieved uh, in christ in the messiah and so my conviction is that what God intends to do and what God achieves in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, God will do by eventually bringing all people to faith in Christ and with them being united to him. So I'm not wanting to suggest, and often people say this, oh my goodness, you think everyone will be saved. Does that mean all roads lead to God? Or does that mean it doesn't matter what we do because we're going to be saved anyway? Or we can go and sin because, uh, you know, or let's go and all those things we wanted to do that are really bad. We can do them because it doesn't matter because we're going to go to heaven anyway. So what, does it, what difference does it make? I'm not saying any of that. Because I don't think all roads lead to God. Um, I, do, I think the only way to God is through Christ. The only way to salvation is through union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. There isn't another. There isn't another option. So I'm not suggesting uh, something that's not Christ-centered or gospel-focused or about the cross and resurrection. I'm really wanting to say that in some senses Calvinists are right and in some senses Arminians are right in, my, in, in the way I try and hold things together. Because Calvinists have this very strong sense that God is sovereign. God will not fail in achieving his purposes. What God sets out to do, in the end, God will achieve it, and God wins. I want to say, that's right. 
That's absolutely right. And God intends to save humanity. And that's precisely what he's going to do. The, the, the Arminian, on the other hand, says, we believe God loves everyone. We believe God wants to save everyone. Of course, because of creatures' free will, uh, God won't, sadly won't be able to achieve his purposes, but that's what he wants to do, and that's what he tries to do through Christ. And the Calvinist, of course, says, well, if God wanted to do that, he could. If God wanted to save everyone, he could. If God wanted Jesus to die for everyone, he'd have done that. But that's, that's not what happened. I want to say, the Arminian's right. God loves everyone. God wants to save everyone. Christ died for everyone. The Calvinist is right in saying God will get his purposes done. God will achieve his purposes. And um, Christians have always been forced into this, um, you know, because we feel that we, because we feel that the, some people have to end up. Okay, you've had a little bit of a taste here of an evangelical universalist. He goes on for another 30 minutes in this interview, explaining and trying to use scripture to support his view that all men will eventually be saved. He even brings up in this in this interview Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. And Ann and I, interestingly enough, had just watched this week on one of the history channels um, for about an hour and a half one evening. We watched um, the last, uh, probably the last months of the Reich. The, what is it, Third Reich? Third Reich. Third Reich. Uh, very interesting to watch Germany's downfall at the end. And they brought to light all of the horror all of the evil, all of that was going on in these camps when finally the Americans and Russians entered Germany and started coming across these camps, all of the evil. But he goes on to say that even Adolf Hitler will be in heaven. Everyone will be in heaven. Because God's saving purpose is to stand before the Father the Christ will stand before the Father for all men. Now, lest you think that these kind of things are not going around in Christian circles. Bonnie, do you mind if I use your illustration? Now I put her on the spot. <laughs> Just this Sunday, she told me after last, last week's class, she was in a Bible study, a ladies' Bible study. It was at a lunch. A lunch on, on Friday. And I don't think it was Riverbend's. No. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Um, but she was talking with a lady, and somehow the subject in, in, the, in the group discussion had come up, heaven and hell, and uh, Bonnie had said something like, um, boy, isn't it, those are serious subjects, and they're real, and we need to be concerned about them. And this person said to Bonnie that, well, she didn't know if there was a hell, correct? She, she said there's a hell, but she doesn't think it's eternal. Okay, there's a hell, but it's not eternal. It's not eternal. Well, the next place to ask that lady, what she has in mind would be to say, well, then, are you an annihilationist? Do you believe that the wicked will cease? That's why hell is not going to last forever, because they're going to be put to death in the lake of fire. Or are you a universalist? And believe that ultimately, after a period of punishment, they will be saved and redeemed. Even Adolf Hitler. So that's the kind of world we live in. And uh, here's some more. I 
wanted to just share some more statistics with you as to what we're facing in, in the times in which we live on biblical subjects like heaven and hell. Here's a survey that was done, and I think it was by the Ligonier, affiliated with Ligonier and R.C. Sproul's ministry. Um, and he, evangelicals were surveyed, and evangelicals were asked a number of questions. Here's two of them. Most people are good by nature. 52% of those identifying themselves as evangelicals said yes. 52% of people are good by their nature, the way they come into this world. Second thing was on here was God accepts those of all religions, including Christians, Jews, Muslims, etc. 51% of those identifying themselves as evangelicals said, yeah, yeah. This is the world we live in. Even people identifying themselves as evangelicals are departing from the Word of God. You know, I often tell my students in seminary class, and I've been teaching in seminary classes since 2006. I often tell them, guys, one of the greatest disservices you can do to a congregation or a class that you're lecturing or preaching is to preach a text and not bring all of the scriptures on that subject to bear on that text. And I, I've told them this. You can prove almost anything from Scripture if you take verses out of context or you only teach a verse and you don't bring these others to bear on the subject. You can end up letting your people walk out on Sunday morning having given a great sermon and they will be confused completely because you didn't cover it all. You know what some of my students have said? Well, we don't have time to do it all in that sermon. What's my answer to them? Break the sermon up into three sermons. Make sure you cover the Word of God in totality. Does the Scripture say as He said that God loves all men, that He desires all men to be saved? Yes. Yes, 1 Timothy 2. He desires all men to be saved. But does the Scripture also say that all men are not saved? Yes. Does he say in Matthew 25 that there will be a great division at the end into the sheep and the goats and it will be in accordance with their deeds? Now that doesn't mean, that's not teaching a work salvation. See, that's where you have to bring another scripture to bear. We are saved to do good deeds, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created unto good works, which He has before ordained that we should what? Walk in them. So you bring all of Scripture to bear on this. So men are, and women are divided, sheep and goats, on the basis of what they've done by the power of the Spirit, the reality of the life of Jesus Christ in them. That's the way judgment is meted out even at the great white throne. They were judged according to their deeds. John 5 says that. But it's all deeds that we do in His power because the unsaved man without the Spirit of God is someone who is a slave, a bond slave to sin. We're only freed when we come to know Him. Freed from our sin. Freed to serve Christ. 
So I tell these young men, you, you have got to preach the whole counsel of God. If, if, it's, if something is too long for you to do in a sermon and you can't bring the other texts to bear and make sure they leave with a proper understanding of this, make it into three sermons. This is what's going on today. There's a lot of evangelical Christians out there who are not hearing the Word of God taught in totality. There's a lot of churches not teaching the Word of God in totality. And it's scary because people are walking out the door and saying things like, this lady said to Bonnie, well, I believe that hell's not going to last forever. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew 25, right after the, he talks about the sheep and the goats? Turn there with me if you have your Bible, and you better. <laughs> Jerry's taking, uh, you're taking account of that, aren't you, Jerry? Matthew 25, at the very end, let's start with verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me. Now Jesus is the one teaching this. Jesus had more to say on the subject of eternal judgment than anyone in Scripture. He had more to say on this. Listen to, to what he says again. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's been prepared for the devil and his angels, and those who have not come to Christ, those who are the goats, those who were never changed, who never had a heart for him, they're going to go to the same place with the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And those will go away into eternal what? punishment. But the righteous, here's the contrast, into eternal life. That's fairly descriptive. And when you leave that verse out, when you're teaching on this subject, you haven't taught the whole counsel of God on what happens after death. After death, people will go into an eternal situation in either heaven or hell for eternity. Now you're going to hear this morning, what we're going to discuss this morning is what some evangelicals are saying in response to the teaching of the Word of God. What, what they're communicating. There are four things that we're going to look at this morning. The annihilationist view, the universalist view, which we just saw being um, purported here on the screen. Then also those who teach a purgatory, a view of purgatory. And also those who would teach inclusivism, which means... This is another kind of form. It says that all who have never heard the gospel, if they've never heard the gospel, they will be saved. It's only hearing the gospel for them and 
and, and rejecting it that's going to send them to hell. Now that would be a, I think I mentioned this last week, but that would be a strong case to say quit taking the gospel out then. If that's the case, then everybody will be saved if they never hear. That just makes no sense. And what are we told in Matthew 28? Take the gospel into all the world. Make disciples. Teach them. I want to, I want to just begin these, looking at these four sections with a... Pastor? Yes. I'm what? The oh, the volume went down. Either that or I'm getting weaker up here. I don't know. Hello? I, I don't think Satan likes what we're saying here this morning. Could be. There we go. Um, how many of you know of Clark Penning? Heard of Clark Penning? When I was at Dallas Seminary, 69 to 73, that kind of dates me, doesn't it? 69 to 73, after I got out of the Air Force and, and a year of all expenses paid in Vietnam uh, by the U.S. government, um, I graduated in 73. Our speaker at graduation that year was a man I had never heard of until then, Clark Pennick. He was a young, rising evangelical star, an evangelical scholar coming along the way. I remember thinking at graduation as I looked at him, he was wearing his graduation gowns from when he graduated at his school. And I don't know where he went, but he looked like Captain Marvel. <laughs> it was red and yellow and green and blue and the cape. And I thought, man, I just got this red thing. He's, he is really good to go. Um, but he was a rising star on the scene. But listen to this. These are recent words before his death. I think he passed away in 2010, from what I saw on the internet. Listen to this quote from Clark Penn. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God. Did you hear that? Clark Pennick, who, who preached at my graduation service at Dallas Seminary. At least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend torturing people without end is not what our God does. Now where did he come up with that? Where did he get it? He did not get it by a detailed and serious study of the Scriptures. He got it in his own thinking. He got it by coming to Scripture and picking and choosing like Thomas Jefferson did. Do you remember Thomas Jefferson's Bible? He picked out the verses he liked, cut them out, pasted them on a page. That was his Bible. You know, as, as much as hell is a horrible subject and a horrible place, this is what the Son of God who came to save taught in Scripture. And all the words of God are profitable. 
That's why Paul says, rightly divide the word of truth. Bill, I saw your hand up. Yeah, so many people don't want to have the balance between God's love to save everybody and his justice to punish those who don't follow him. They don't right. keep that balance of love and justice. Right, God they don't look at the whole character of God. God is ultimately holy, holy, holy. He is separate from all. And then you look at all the other characteristics that come under the holiness of God. And He is just. And He's righteous. And He's holy. He's also loving and kind. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He wants us to take the invitation of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth so that people might be saved. People might come to Him. Jesus Christ died for sins. And then there is the great debate among theologians. Was it the sins of all men? Because if He died for the sins of all men, like Robin uh, Perry was saying on the screen. Did that just go out again? Hmm. Is it back on? Yes. Okay. Maybe we should just stop and rebuke the enemy here. Uh, pray. But Robin Perry, in essence, is saying he died for all men in the same way. If he was the substitute for all men, all men will be saved. But the Scriptures say he is the substitute for those who believe. He is the substitute for the elect. He's the substitute for those that come, not for all men. What's being said today is, is because people are not taking the total Word of God Seriously. Now, look at your outline for a moment, because the first thing here is what alternatives do the world give in explaining? If you have to ask somebody who's not an evangelical, and you ask someone who's just out there who's not a believer or professing to be a believer, what do you think about hell? They will say, oh, no, there's no hell. And here's some of the reasons they give. There's no God to, to give an account to. That's what an unbeliever would say. There's no God. It's all by evolution. You live, you die, and that's it. And there is no life after death. This is it. So get all the gusto you can. You know, you only go around once here. Enjoy life. Do what you want to do. Others say things like this. Even if there is life after death, all individuals are basically good and will be there. Those are some of the things that they say. Another, another thing that comes out is there's really nothing right or nothing wrong. And even if there are a few right things, there are not many. There's not many. Well, that's what the world is saying, but the sad thing is we have people identifying themselves as evangelicals saying some similar kind of stuff. So again, here are the four things we're looking at. Annihilationism, Universalism, inclusivism, and purgatory. And I'm going to give you some quotes and responses from evangelicals that you could put in each of these camps. So today, we're going to start the next two weeks looking at what does the Bible say about the place of the wicked after they leave this life. That's sobering. John Stott got that right when he was talking about this. And the first thing we're going to talk about is annihilationism. And I want to read to you from an article. 
John Stott's response, and it's an article entitled Judgment in Hell. And I got this off the internet, the internet a few months back. Here's what John Stott is. He, he had a liberal friend who was writing him, challenging him. And by the way, I don't know if you know John Stott. He, he's with, I, I trusting he's with the Lord. I think he is. But I think he was really off in this area. I like a lot of his books. He has some good things to say. I have a lot of his commentaries in my library. He's writing back to his friends who challenged him, this liberal guy who challenged him in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. He said, it is with great reluctance and with a heavy heart that I now approach the subject of hell. He said, um, unevangelized million, millions as human beings who though created by God, like God, and for God, are now living without God. He said, this is a phrase which I have myself often used because it seems to me to sum up the poignant tragedy of human lostness. And when it is extended to the possibility that some who live without God now may also spend eternity without Him, the thought becomes almost unbearable. Some evangelicals speak about hell. It is a horrible sickness of mind or spirit. What he's saying there is some evangelicals speak about hell lightly. That's sad if we do, but he's probably right. And he says, um, it is a horrible sickness of mind or spirit instead, since on the day of judgment, when some will be condemned, there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I thank God for Jeremiah. Israelite patriot, though he was, he was charged with the heartbreaking mission of prophesying the destruction of his nation. Its ruin would only be temporary. It would not be eternal. Nevertheless, he could not restrain his tears. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. He's quoting Jeremiah there. It is within the pro prophetic tradition of tragedy, of sorrow over people's rejection of God's word and over resultant inevitability of judgment that Jesus wept over the impenitent city of Jerusalem. He cried out, you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. In this too, Paul had the mind of Christ. He wrote, it's with great sorrow and unceasing anguish he left in his heart for his he felt in his heart for his own race, the people of Israel. His heart's desire and prayer to God was for their salvation. He was willing, even like Moses before him, to be himself cursed and cut off from Christ, if only thereby his people might be saved. He had the same deep feelings for the Gentiles. For three whole years in Ephesus, he reminded the church elders in the city, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So here's what John Stott says. He says, I long that we could in some small way stand in the tearful tradition of Jeremiah, Jesus, and Paul. I want to see more te tears among us. I think we need to repent of our nonchalance, our hard-heartedness. Now, I can't disagree with him there. We probably do take the subject too lightly sometimes. There are people all around us, neighbors, people at work, loved ones, cousins, perhaps children, grandchildren, 
who don't know Jesus and are on the road to hell. That's sobering. And it ought to cause us to be on our knees. Weeping for those that are heading that way. That's a serious thing. So he goes on, however, to say how he believes the Lord brought him through this. And that is he became an annihilationist. He believes that suffering will only be for a time. And then when they're thrown into the lake of fire, they will be burned up. Let me read to you some of his principles in this very article that he stated in this letter to his liberal friend. First thing he says is, the language of the Bible supports the annihilationist view. Three things he points out. The word destruction. Destruction. The Greek word is, um, the Greek verb is apolumi, and the Greek noun is apolia. So he says these two words, the noun and the verb, for destruction in the Greek language, picture an end. Now normally when we use the word destruction, we would think that, wouldn't we? So-and-so was destroyed, their house burnt down, and they were destroyed. We would think, okay, they came to an end. They came to an end. But is that the way the Scripture uses the word? That's what we're going to be looking at in the subsequent two weeks. He goes to Matthew 10.28, and he quotes it. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, hell, he says, would seem to deprive one of both their physical body and spiritual being. They'd be done. It's over. They end. He goes to Matthew 7.13. Narrow the road that leads to life and broad the road that leads to destruction. So he's making a big play on this that destruction means end. Now as I said last week, we know this, even if, if, um, if you could make a case for that, what John Stott is saying there, we know that Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man was in Hades awaiting final judgment and suffering, and since final judgment hasn't come in 2019 to this date, that man has been suffering since the time of Christ or before if Jesus is actually picturing a real situation. And he may well have been because it's the only parable that would use the names of individuals and particular people, the rich man and Lazarus. But he's certainly, even if it is a parable, he's giving a picture in the parable of where the wicked go, those who are without Christ now. Hades. Did the rich man want to remain there? No, indeed he didn't. In fact, he was concerned about his relatives that were still living. That were still living. Another thing he talks about is imagery, the lake of fire, he says. He will, uh, he will burn up the chaff. He's going back and quoting from the, from the New Testament here. Matthew 3.12. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says the purpose of fire is to destroy. And the picture of the lake of fire then is to destroy people. Burn them up. He, he will say things like, and others will do this also who are annihilationists. They will, they will talk about in Revelation where it says in the smoke of the fire. 
He says, yes, the smoke of the fire goes up forever and ever, but the people in it are gone. Now my question would be, why does smoke go up when there's nothing to be burnt? Smoke, when I light a fire, the smoke goes away when the kindling is consumed. And the smoke of that fire goes up forever and ever. I was at a conference one time, Ann and I were both in Annapolis, Maryland, near the Naval Academy. And uh, we went to a John Piper conference while we were there. I think I was there, by the way, candidating at a church um, that was meeting. And there were, I can remember there were some midshipmen there. And I thought, Lord, if you brought me to Annapolis, this would really be strange because my, my church... Um, two churches ago was next door to West Point. Then I'm called to Colorado Springs, next door to the Air Force Academy. And now I'm candidating in Annapolis and going to a Piper. I thought this would really be strange. I'm really tied into the service. Here. But he never called me there. I'm still in Colorado. Um, but John Piper and I were talking after one of the, the sessions. I went up to him and I said, what do you think about these guys like Rob Bell who's saying there is no hell? He said, Dwight, all I can say is this. He says, I know the words are figurative. The lake of fire. The unquenchable fire. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said, I'm not sure in the final analysis that we are to take those literally. But he says, I am sure of this. Even if they're figuratively, they picture something more than I can even imagine. To be separated for eternity from Christ. That's sobering. That is very sobering. So he talks about the imagery and, and that's another thing that pictures this destruction. Then he talks about justice. Here's the fourth point he makes. God will judge men, he says, according to what they have done. Revelation 20 says, 2012 says, according to their deeds. In Exodus 21 it says, Judgment will come to you if you break the law, life to life, um, life for life, and tooth for tooth, arm for arm, leg for leg, all of those kinds of things that are there. So he says judgment is going to be in proportion to our sin. But then he goes on to say, if we sin in this life in a temporal way, would it be fair of God to judge us for eternity? For temporal sin. He says that, that's not in proportion to our deeds. That's not in proportion. Yes, John? What is temporal sin? Well, I mean, in this temporal life, it's just we're only here for 70, perhaps 80 years, Moses says, and um, we're doing it in this temporal time frame. So you would think we send people off to prison now for life, right? So he, he's kind of saying it would be judgment in that sense. You do it in this life, you only live so many years, so only that many would be taken away from you in punishment. Certainly wouldn't, wouldn't suffer for eternity in light of what you've done just now. Now, I'm, I'm going to stop there because he goes into the universalism which we're going to get at. There's some others though. John, John doesn't use these. Here's a couple of other things that other annihilationists say. They say the meaning of the word eternal is only the age to come. It doesn't mean everlasting. But guess what? The age to come is everlasting. That's what the scripture says. This age and the age to come. There's no more ages. The age to come is an eternal age. That, that doesn't hold any water. 
Are you telling me it's five up? Is it five up? Oh, five minutes. Okay. I just got the signal back there. It looked like a one of Santa's reindeers. Uh, but five minutes. We'll try to wind this down. Let me go to the Universalist. I'm going to quote you. I listened to all of the 30-some minutes of this guy. Let me, let me give you some of the things that he's saying as far as Universalism. Um, the Bible, he says, provides hope. You heard him say that. Church history gives support. He goes back to some of the early church fathers who believed in universalism. By the way, if you look at church fathers beyond about 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be careful what you read. I teach church history. And the church began to go far astray early on. Left the word of God. He says, um, we are grounded in the fundamentals, that what he believes is grounded in the fundamentals of orthodox Christian beliefs. You, you kind of heard him say that. Christ stands before God for all men. Christ died in behalf of all men. God desires all men to be saved. Does this mean all roads lead to God? No, they don't. It's only through Christ. Does this mean we should go and sin? No. He sounds very, very biblical on some areas. But then he says God is going to bring everyone. In Christ all will be made alive. He goes to Romans 5. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Every knee will bow. Ephesians chapter 2. Who is the Savior of all men, especially believers, but all men? God in Christ has reconciled the world to Himself. He says, yes, there's eschatological judgment, I guess looking at Revelations 20, but not, there's not a point of no return. Because He says in Revelation 21, you see the nations before God again. So he's trying to give biblical rationale. Even in the end, all the redeemed are washed in the blood of the Lamb. God will be all in all. Yet salvation uh, never trivializes, tri trivializes sin. It's horrible. But God loves all and He can transform all. So you can see where the universalist is going. John Stott, the annihilationist, he's giving reasons why the wicked will cease to exist. And both of them in essence are saying it would be unjust, unloving, unkind of a merciful, loving, caring Father who created us to send men to an eternal judgment. That's where they're coming from. Now you can come to that conclusion, but you can't come to that conclusion from the Bible. You can't get there from here. So you either have to decide, am I going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm going to see that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness so that the man of God might be perfect, equipped for every good work. Am I going to believe that Am I going to rightly divide the word of truth? Or am I going to let my feelings begin to dictate? That's where you have to come. There are some, here's another guy, and I don't have time to read him, but if you ever get a chance, I might read him next week. His name is, uh, fortunately it's not Rob. His name is, let's see, Jerry Walls. W-A-L-L-S, Jerry Walls. 
one of few evangelicals who believe in purgatory. I've got a friend in Colorado, a graduate of Dallas Seminary, who's postulating a purgatory. And these guys, a lot of them, look at all of the rewards passages, all of that about rewards, and they say, and, and they, they tie that in with the warning passages. They say the warning passages against about the future, the warning passages about the future are only in relationship to this life. They have nothing to do with future warning. And where you spend eternity, you might start off in purgatory because you didn't get many rewards. The ones who have lots of rewards, they're over here in heaven, but the ones in purgatory can eventually work their way over. Jerry Walls believes this. And it's interesting. He says, heaven is a place of total perfection. That means only humans who are totally perfect in their daily living can go there. So who's going to go there? Nobody. Who's going to go there? Nobody. Nobody. So you've got to go to purgatory. And then you've got to be worked on and refined to, to, to when you become perfect. Then you have the inclusivists who say, well, those who never hear are going to be okay. Because they never had a chance. Annihilationists Universalists, inclusivists, those who believe in a purgatory that are evangelical, all who are departing from the truth of the Word of God. Yes? Does he say that while you're in purgatory, how you attain these good deeds? They never really go into much detail with that. It's just that you're in the refining process. Just remember that the rewards are to the believer and how much you will enjoy and appreciate and be used in heaven. Jesus said that to his disciples. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You want to be great there? Then what? You be the servant of all here. Use your life here to lay up treasure in heaven. To get more out of heaven. All believers will be there, but the, the rewards are for believers and in relationship to heaven. That's an interesting study. And I did a whole class back in Colorado on just what the three different groups of evangelicals regarding what they believe about rewards. One group, no rewards at all. Every Christian's going to be the same. Other group that I just mentioned with this friend who graduated from Dallas, rewards have to do with whether you're in purgatory, whether you start out there, or whether you're going to be starting out in heaven. Then there is this middle group, which I would be in to say, no, rewards are for true believers and how you will be used and how you will, how you will enjoy and delight in that which is yet future if you are the kind of believer here in this life that you ought to be. That's another series, though. Maybe next year on that one what the Bible teaches about rewards. Any other questions, though? Next week, we're going to pick up now, what does the Bible say to answer these kind of men and what they're saying? And I, I just want to say this as we close. I don't know Walls, and I don't know Robin Perry, nor do I know Rob Bell. I know something about John Stott, and he's written a lot of good stuff that's very worthy but how did these men get where they ended up? How did they get there? At some point, they begin 
to listen and rightly divide the word of truth. We dare not do that. Next week and the week after, we're going to look open the word of truth, and we're going to look at the full story of what God says about heaven and about hell, about their duration, about what goes on there, about what life will be like, whether it is eternal or not. We're going to look at the Word of God and let the Word of God decide what we ought to walk out of here holding on to and believing. And as John Stott said, it is a sobering subject. When I was growing up, I don't know about you, but as I look around, there, there are some of you who are my age, maybe even a tad older, I don't know. We won't, we won't check your birthday. Um, but when I grew up, I heard a lot about hell. I don't hear a lot about it much in this day. Not even in evangelical circles. But when I grew up, men preached about eternity and where you ended up. And I can even remember as a young unsaved man, that, that gripped me. Said, wow, that's serious. And it's in the Bible. I don't know that our young people are hearing a lot about that today. But we need to know what the Word of God says. And then, in the latter five weeks, we need to know what it says about heaven. What does it say about where we're going to spend eternity and what life will be like in the new heavens and new earth with our Savior? That will be phenomenal. So don't just stop with the first four weeks. It's the last five that are important for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for allowing us to look at what some men have said and are saying and how they have strayed from the truth of Scripture. May we be steadfast. May we have our eyes fixed upon you. May we find our truth in the Word of God and it alone. It is the only source of faith and practice for us. Keep us true to that. We may not understand everything, but keep us clinging to the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.